I always said that my two daughters are the two coaches that I learned most about basketball because I learned most things about life. I think that since I became a father, I'm way better coach than before that. Why? Because when you find in your life a balance that makes you understand what's really important, you are better focusing on important things. And this applies also to basketball and to coaching. There are things that appear to be important, but they're not. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome assistant coach for Mambas Obradorio in Spain's top division, the ACB, Gonzalo Rodriguez. Coach Rodriguez is here today to discuss all things scouting and game planning, anticipating problems as a coach, and we talk in-game communication and work-life balance during an entertaining start, sub, or sit. In continuation of this podcast, this May, Coach Rodriguez will also be leading a five-week mentorship group for members of SG+. On top of weekly sessions providing in-depth insights and assisting coaches on topics like teaching methodology, practice planning, drill design, international offensive and defensive concepts, and more, Coach Rodriguez will also be providing individualized emails and texts to all members of the group for specific questions on their teams. For more information on the mentorship group and to become a member of SG+, visit slappingglass.com today and sign up for a weekly newsletter. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Gonzalo Rodriguez. Coach, we've gotten a chance to get to know you off air for a couple of years now, and we are just really excited to finally have you on the podcast. So thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's an honor to be in your podcast. Thank you, Coach. The place we wanted to focus in on to start was on scout preparation, game planning preparation, and then eventually stuff leading onto the floor and just how you and the staff think about, you know, basically all that goes into preparing for a game with your team. And so I guess we'll start with just how you think about the scout first, looking at players, looking at offenses, defenses from your own personal side before we get into like what you do with the team. Yeah, okay. Let's say that we would like to look at the scouting like, on one hand, the way to prepare games. You know, we prepare games and we adjust things, uh, you know, knowing the opponent's strengths and weaknesses. But also, we use the scouting for our personal improvement. Like, you know, everything you face in a game is a challenge and you want to be prepared for everything. Like, you don't want to be surprised in the middle of the battle. So sometimes we find in the opponent something that is hard for us to defend or a defense that is a challenge to look for ways to attack it. So we analyze opponents. We want to, let's say, anticipate all the possible problems that may happen in the game. So through all these years that I've been doing the scouting reports, analyzing players, analyzing teams, I learned so much and our team every season learns and grows because we use this information for our own improvement. 
And I think these two keys are very important in order to analyzing another team. Coach, if I could just start with players, looking at scouting players before we get to maybe schemes. And when you're watching an opposing team, what it is about players that you look at first as far as when it comes to scouting, obviously the shooting and driving all that, but what you get into with them? Well, first, I try to look at the players without having a previous concern about them. Like, I want to analyze how they play, not how I believe they play. Because sometimes when you are many years in the league, you tend to be too general about players. And I don't like to do that. It's not a matter of this player drives better to the right or to the left. I like to dive in a little bit deeper and try to analyze really what the player do well and what the player does not so well. And I always connect the way that this player plays against the differences that he faces. Because I think it's very important that the player is not the player playing against zero. Is how the player reads some differences and how the player uses his skills to attack those differences. So it's very important not only know about the player itself, but also know the player within the team tactics. So when I'm watching the player, I try to describe it the best I can within his team office. Because sometimes it happens that you analyze a player in a different team, in a different league, with a different coach, and you find out after that that with the new team, with the new coach, with the new teammates, with the new philosophy, this player does some things that you didn't realize he could do. So I like to analyze players within the team, offense and defense, trying to be as fair as possible, try to you know, not letting my own previous thoughts about the player interfere in my analysis about the player. Coach, I really love what you talk about connecting how a player reads defenses and certain types of defenses. When you're trying to, say, look at how a player reads a defense or what they struggle with or whatnot, what do you look at? Is it their turnovers against certain coverages? Is it their assists? Like, is there a specific stat or a way that you narrow in on how you think that they read a defense well or not well? What I try to do is first try to match the strengths of this player with the differences that we run in our team. For example, let's talk about pick and roll. Mm -hmm. We have some pick and roll coverages and we don't use a new one against a certain player. So we have to choose from our defensive playbook, from our defensive staff, what is going to be best to defend this player. Because sometimes our game plan rules are based on certain players' characteristics. Sometimes the rules are not so into the players' characteristics, are more like a team tactics. But many times, yeah, we need to adjust what we do in defense to the player. Well, I'm going to give you a quick example. A couple of years ago, we had to defend a guy. And back then, we used to run our weak defense. Mm -hmm. So we used to deny the right hand of the right-handed players and the left hand to the left-handed players. But I came to a point analyzing a player where I thought that this guy being right-handed, he was excellent shooting pull-ups, dribbling with the left. So this weak defense didn't fit very well the characteristics of the player. So you want to kind of match up your defensive staff 
to the characteristics of the guy, and then you can make some adjustments. Or let's talk about you want to play hedge defense in a pick and roll against a guy, and if this player is very good using jump passes or pocket passes, or there are players that are very good passing to the roll, but they are not so good reading the second pass. Mm -hmm. So I want to know if we can force a guy to pass to the roll or we need to do a little adjustment in the hedge defense, def overplay the role, and let this guy make the read of passing to other plays. Because sometimes I think that this player is not able to do it. Maybe not right or left, but, you know, two hands or whatever. So I try to see whether the guy has the skills to pass or shoot or drive against our coverages, and if he makes the right reads. For example, with some players... Sometimes we decide to change defense every time they play. For example, if a guy is a very good post passer, we don't help the same way to the low post whenever he's posting up because probably the strength of this guy is, you know, reading and passing. So he knows and he can anticipate that every time we are helping from the same guy, this guy is going to make the right decision all the time. Right. You know, so sometimes we can evaluate not only the skills, but also the ability to read. Coach, at what point or what step in the scouting process do stats kind of come into play, especially when you're looking at players and their strengths and weaknesses? Well, we added a new guy to the staff last season, and it's been wonderful for us. This guy is an expert in uh, advanced stats, and he's doing an amazing job for us. It was a learning in this area because what the advanced stats give us is like a clue. So we know where to look for. We don't want to find something to explain the number, but we just get into uh, the right path to look for things that can be helpful. So in this case, we don't pay a lot of attention to the regular stats, but we take a deep look to the advanced stats. There are some times that the numbers and the coach's eye just go in the right direction. Sometimes yeah. your eye as a coach your instinct and experience tells us things that the number says, yeah, coach, you're right. <laughs> and sometimes the number says, you got to look a little bit in the other direction. Yeah. I don't believe in numbers like the truth to everything, but I do believe that stats can help you because sometimes, like I mentioned before, your previous thoughts about a player or a team, they may lie to you and you may be too subjective. And we want to be as objective as we can. And also, the numbers have to match office and defense. For example, when we look at the stats of a player, the stats don't mean anything if you don't connect the actions of the player and the defense he's facing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is very interesting. We always try to look at the players and the teams. How do they respond to the certain differences? Not analyzing the teams in a global way. Before we kind of get more global uh, team stuff, asking about shooters and the weight that they carry, you know, within a scout. And for you, are there markers of like different ways that you look at shooters in a scout, a standstill shooter versus a jump shooter versus someone that could come off of a stagger screen? And then mm -hmm. I guess on top of that, is there sort of a line of like 40% from three or some line of, I guess, demarcation? where you say, if it's below this, we're not really going to consider him a shooter. We'll play him a certain way, potentially. And then if he's above this as a shooter, we'll play him a certain way. Yeah. 
what we pay attention is to the points per shot of the player, not really the shooting percentage. Okay. So let's say that we analyze a player who scores, you know, 1.80 every time he shoots from a spot up uh, position. We consider players in a different way if they have good points per shot numbers. But once again, we analyze the defense this player faces and the situation when the player is best. For example, there are excellent spot up shooters, but percentages decrease a lot if they have to use only one dribble. Mm -hmm. And there are guys who shoot, let's say, not great percentage from the three-point line, but you find out that most of the shots of these guys are pull-ups or the shots are in the last seconds of the possession. For example, we had a player some years ago. He was a correct shooter, but his shooting percentage were very bad. And we decided to analyze every shot. I analyzed with this guy every shot. And we came to the point where he took so many shots in the last five seconds of the possessions that make his percentages decrease a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so we don't really look at percentages overall. Once again, if I take a look at the advanced stats and I look at the points per shot this guy shoots, then I analyze how he plays. Okay. So this is kind of the first thing. And second, sometimes we want to know the shot selection of the player, you know, because some players are very dangerous, but the shot selection is terrible. <laughs> right. And this is related to the reads because we like to make this guy read so he takes bad decisions at all. So for example, let's say that this player is good shooting off screens, but sometimes he takes cheap shots, like, you know, off balance, not great. And we have a rule, for example, for great shooters of screens that we are going to double jumping, playing next or hot defense with the defender of the pass. With this guy, with a guy who has poor shooting selection, sometimes instead of just jumping to the help, we want to fake and create a little bit of doubts or we say to his defender, sometimes you trail him, sometimes you go through the screen, you know, just challenge his readings and you can decrease the percentage of the shooter if you make him read. True. So those are, are situations that we manage. There are certain coverages that, that we use, pick and roll defenses or low post defenses. And we tell the guys who are the shooters on the court because some defenses that we use allow us to choose who shoots at the end of the possession. So we rotate with this guy, with this guy, we don't rotate. We fake always with this guy because we want to create doubts and so on. So points per shot is a good number for us to choose these differences or fake differences. A quick thank you to our newest partner here at Slapping Glass, one of the best tech companies in the world of sports, Huddle. As many of you know, Huddle extends an array of useful products to coaches from their auto-tracking camera, Huddle Focus, live streaming tool, Huddle TV, wearable athlete performance tracker, Wemu, and their newest offering, Huddle Instat, an all-in-one data powerhouse platform that combines advanced tagging with a global film library. For more information on all that's offered with Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. Thanks to Huddle for the support. And now back to our conversation. You mentioned also you try to anticipate problems when scouting. And now maybe if we start to look at team tactics, opponent tactics, when you're trying to anticipate problems, 
I would imagine it's a little bit of both, but is it more so understanding the weaknesses of your team and then looking at your opponent, what they do in those situations, if it's, you know, a side ball screens or empty side ball screens, or will you look at the opponent and see what they do well and then anticipate like this could be the problem that we're going to have in this game? We try to anticipate problems in two ways, from an individual point of view and from a tactical point of view. Like individual point of view, I mean that if we have a player who is suffering in some type of defense, let's say one-on-one or pick and roll or post defense or whatever, Mm -hmm. we try to anticipate that the opponent has a strength exactly in the point where we have a weakness. So they are going to attack to that weakness. And we need to anticipate that. And we need to decide whether we are going to use a different defense to help this guy or we change the natural matchups of the games and we pair the players with a guy who is not in the position. So we try to anticipate individual weaknesses and you have to know your team and be real about your team. And second, we try to find weaknesses in our defensive tactic before the opponent does. So, for example, let's say that one of our pick-and-roll defenses is, let's say, hedge defense. And the opponent has some big guys that can play pick-and-pop, not only deep rolls, also short rolls. Of course, if you want to double the ball, you have a problem against pick-and-pop and against short rolls. And we need to anticipate that. And whenever we design or defensive rules, we have to think before this problem comes in again, what happens if the opponent plays this concept? What happens if they play pick and pop? What happens if they play to the full side and not to single side so we have one guy to tag in the role? What happens? And whenever we design our defenses, we try to anticipate what problems may occur in a game. And we try to find rules And now two ways appear in front of us. One way is to find a rule or adjustment in that defense to avoid this problem. For example, if we decide to hedge and there is a guy who plays pick and pop, we decide to rotate immediately with the two guys on the full side. For example, it may be a solution. Mm -hmm. And then let's solve the the mismatch that, that happens there. It can be a solution. Or the second path is we need to identify this exception in the rule and change the defense. For example, we want to play hedge defense when the ball goes to the single side. But whenever this player is on the court, with him, we never hedge. We do a different thing. So when you find a weakness in your defenses, you can do one of these two things or learn the adjustment and prepare it with the team or decide to change the defense when you face a problem that you didn't find a way to solve it. In practice, you need to find the answers in practice because the game is too late. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) When I said that we learn a lot, that we use the scouting to learn, I mean this. And same in offense. When we prepare an offensive game plan and we face some type of defenses, We learn, we make some adjustment and we learn. And we apply this learning, this new thing to other concepts. So we are growing and the offense of the team is growing through the season. Coach, I wanted to 
ask you a little bit more about the anticipating problems, the creating rules, exceptions possibly to rules. Obviously, it's really interesting. And then also just how you and the staff, because I'm sure as you go through a scout, there's multiple problems that could arise when you face good teams, whether it's a ball handler or a shooter or pick and pop, all the things that could happen and how you decide the most important problems to fix. Mm-hmm. And then the ones that you just say, <laughs> we're not going to overly worry about, we're going to just have to play through those kind of problems. Okay. First, I would say that most of the times the answer to the possible problems are in the basic stuff. We stress a lot the basic part of the defense. Because at the end, you find some concepts and some plays of the opponent that if you apply a good ball pressure and your defensive positions are good, according to the ball main rule, you are going to solve a lot of situations. And also, we stress a lot to the players that we can change any rule, but we cannot change the way we are on the floor. Like talking about activity, talking about readiness, talking about being focused on whatever is happening on the course. So most of the times, the basic part of the defense helps you out solving a lot of problems. Second, sometimes we analyze a team and we say, well, they are great post players and they get a lot from the post. And then we go to the numbers and the numbers say, well, they post up six times every game. So at the end, our mentality tells us that, well, this guy is a very good post player. But the reality says that, yeah, he's good, but they're not using it that much. So are we going to spend one whole practice preparing a different defense to defend a situation that's going to happen five or six times in a game? We just go and apply regular rules. So we spend a big amount of time in the general things of the defense. And we try to apply all these things to any problem. If the general rules are not the answer to a certain situation, then we look to a special adjustment. But my experience says that the basics are the answer to almost everything. So if you are good on the basic part of basketball, same in offense, same in offense, you can create the best play to get your shooters open. If you don't screen well, if you don't stay in the screen, if you don't use the proper angle, if you don't pass the ball well, your play is not going to work. Coach, I'd like to follow up when on these basics you mentioned, just the importance of focus and concentration. If we step outside of preparation, game playing, like how do you guys work with your team if, for, if there are seasons or moments you think like we're just not focused enough? How do we work on that in practice? How do we bring that intention into practice? I read somewhere sometime, I don't know who did it, who said that the maximum physical effort is intensity and the maximum mental effort is concentration. So sometimes in practice, we demand a lot of physical effort, but if we don't demand a high amount of concentration, then practice is not going to be preparing us for the game. How do you work on concentration? Obviously, you cannot call a timeout in a game and say to the players, hey, guys, you have to concentrate because they know that. It's like if you tell a guy, hey, don't be nervous before two key free throws. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't work like that. I wish it could work, but it's not like that. Yeah. So how do you work on concentration? First, I think this is about building habits. 
we use specific drills when there is a part of the drill that we are working our offense, and in the same drill, another part we're working our defense. For example, we're going to do this. We're going to play twice, five on five in the half court. The offensive team runs whatever concept, and the defensive team plays our defense. But then we have two trips. We go up and down twice. And when we go up and down, it's opposite. So we are going to defend with the opponent rules and the offense is going to attack with our staff. Mm -hmm. With this drill, you force players to be focused on because they have to concentrate not only in what is happening on the court, but also in the rules of the drill. The drills have to be easy when the task on hands is demanding. Like when you are working on a difficult thing, a difficult concept, the drills have to be super easy. But when you're working on five on five on your staff, on your readings, you can complicate a little bit the drill. I don't mean complicating the drill. I don't mean do different lines and tough rules. No, but in stressing what part are we working on in every drill. Another way to build habits is making sure that the players know exactly what is the goal of the task you have at hand. Like, okay, in this part of practice, our goal is improving this and this. And we're going to play this and that. And they learn to be focused on. Other weapon is the video, the film room. In the film room, you teach players to pay attention to what's happening on the screen. And sometimes I hear coaches, and maybe it's right, saying that the players now are not able to maintain focus for so long when watching film. I just think that when back in the days when you show the players a 40-minute uh, film, they were not paying attention, but they were just, they respect you and they didn't say anything, but it's impossible. They don't maintain attention. Mm -hmm. In the film sessions, we structure the, the film and we use some tools to make sure that the players are focused in certain things. So you are building also the ability to concentrate. So I think that concentration is a habit and you need to teach players to be concentrating on the task they have at hand. Absolutely. Coach, just kind of as we round out this conversation about scouting and game plans and things like that. So maybe the last part of this is, I know we've been talking about practice a little bit, but just sticking on once you and the staff come up with a game plan and all this stuff is included in it. And I know you spend a lot of time figuring that out. Mm -hmm. Then how do you implement that game plan into a practice and let your players know what's important what's not the drills you use film all that goes into then bringing it to the players first i would say that we manage the opponent information from the first day of week so whenever we get to the coaches meeting in the middle of the week let's say if we play saturday we have this meeting wednesday or thursday and from that meeting from that coaches meeting the game plan is done. So we get out of the room with all the coaches knowing what are we going to do and why. Mm -hmm. And then most of times, the first way to tell the players the plan is in the film room when we watch the opponent players. When we do this individual breakdown of the players, we don't only show the characteristic of the opponents. We tell them the game plan in that particular moment. So we use the characteristics of the players to tell them, okay, this guy, he plays like this and like that. Let's say we, can, we start with the pointers. Okay, 
starting pointer, whoever. He shoots like this, like this. His advantages in the games come from this and this. How he plays pick and roll. Okay, he's good doing that and that. That's why in this game, the pick and roll difference is going to be blah, 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 blah. So before we watch the film, I prepare some keynote or whatever you want to call it uh -huh. with the game plan ideas. Mm -hmm. And we start telling the guys what the strengths of the opponent team are. And we use some numbers with that. For example, if we want to tell them, okay, this team is the fastest of the league. They play whatever possessions per game, which is wide above average of the league. And they score whatever points per possession when they shoot the ball in the first seven seconds of the place. So with these numbers, we tell the guys, transition difference is going to be important. Sure. And if we have some adjustment, we show them in the video. After we tell them the strengths of the opponent, we set the goals for our defense in the game. Like, we're going to say, okay, we don't want spot-up threes from this guy. And when they play pick and roll, we don't want them to put the ball in the short roll, for example. So in order to achieve these goals, our defensive rules are going to be this. And we tell them what the rules are for the game. And right after, we watch the film of the players and we explain the game plan. So I can, uh, let's say, I choose the clips, I choose the images that are going to help me to explain them better, the game plan. Mm -hmm. And when that meeting is done with the players, we go into the court to practice. And that practice is defensive game plan practice. So we just try to apply those rules. Sometimes we choose plays from the opponents. Sometimes we play our own stuff if it's very similar. Or sometimes we just take pieces of the plays, parts, small parts, and we just work on our defense against these situations. But the players must know, okay, we're going to play this defense. They are going to attack this way. We may have this problem and we're going to solve it like that. So they need to have a very clear idea of, we try to anticipate what's going to happen in the game. Yeah. But also we tell them, okay, if something else happens, we are ready. For example, if the opponent decides to play zone, we are going to play this, this, and this. If the opponent ranks box and one, we're going to do this, whatever situation. So once again, we anticipate problems before the game happens. And we try to make players understand how the game is going in our way and how the game is going in their way if we don't achieve the goals we have for the game. Coach, you mentioned something like if a team, they play box and one or three, two, they play maybe a defense that you don't face quite often. You know, I think you're always going to be facing hedge, drop, some, some sort of switching. Mm -hmm. Have you found over the years, just in practice, when you bring these defenses, a, a good solution to at least simulate it the best as possible. You know, like if it's not something you really do and you don't face a whole lot, there's going to be a challenge when you get in the game and really see it against an opponent who runs it all the time. So I guess how you just think about preparing your team against these coverages that you don't see and are hard to duplicate in a practice setting. Okay, first is that in our offensive playbook, we have always some plays that we call jokers. So there are some plays that they work against any type of defense. Mm -hmm. And so we tell the players, okay, in case you find something that is not man-to-man, -man, we go straight and run these three plays or these four plays, and they are going to work. So we have jokers in our playbook. Second, 
when I scout teams, I also scout coaches. Like, for example, if I scout a team and the coach is new in the league, I try to look what this coach did with other teams in other leagues. Mm -hmm. Because coaches, you know, if we are feel comfortable in something, we tend to repeat it, right? Yeah. And there are coaches that like to play alternative defenses, use zones or boxing, you know, whatever type of defenses, full court press, whatever. So if I don't know the coach very well, I look to other teams he coached before. And I tell my head coach, hey, two years ago or last season or whatever, this coach ran this type of defense. So we have to be ready in case it happens in the game. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens that we face a coach in a game and he ran the defense he didn't run before in this actual season. But he did it in previous seasons. Mm -hmm. So we try to be prepared with that. Also with the offenses. Uh, When I scout late clock situations... Sometimes I don't have the plays they run this particular season. I go back to look at the plays that the coach ran in other teams in other seasons until I find something. But I need to feel that I'm prepared for everything. And I need to feel that I give the head coach all the information he needs. And sometimes the head coach, he decides, we're not going to say that this team may use these three two zones. We don't want to tell them. We're just going to tell them, in case that they use, we're going to run this. And that's it. And we don't practice it. No. But yeah. we try to be ready for those. Because I remember the podcast guys that you ran when you invited uh, Sergio Scariolo. Mm-hmm. He said that a thing that it was really interesting, and it happens. And he said that when you face, a, let's say, a boxing one, you cannot practice it you know, in a regular way in practice. No. Because at the end, you're going to adjust very quickly, and the play is not going to work. But in the game... Is going to work because, you know, you have the surprise factor yep. and you don't let the opponent adjust to it. I found it very interesting and it's true. And we do kind of the same. If we feel that we're going to face a triangle and two or a boxing one, we kind of work it a little bit, but, but not too much because we already have the place for that play. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high-powered, affordable an easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit Hoopsalytics.com dot com slash glass that's hoopsalytics.com slash glass and now back to our conversation coach uh, this has been awesome so far thanks for all your thoughts on that we want to transition now to a segment on the show we call start sub or sit so we'll give you three different options here and ask you to start one sub one sit one and then we'll uh, have some fun around your answer. That's so. my favorite part. I, I was <laughs> I was sleepless last night thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they're not too hard for you. Yeah, yeah, I think this will be <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So this first question has to do with in-game critical communication. So moments in a game when a player is coming out of the game and let's say they're a little bit emotional or something's going on during the game in three different ways or philosophies on when and how to 
talk with that player once they're coming out of the game. So start, sub, or sit. The first option is immediately as that player is coming out of the game, you stop them and you discuss, give them the feedback right then as soon as they come out. The second option is don't do that. Let them go get some water, cool off for three or four minutes, and then go over and discuss with them. And then the third option would be don't discuss it at all. Let them cool off and wait until they're going back into the game, whenever that is, and discuss their feedback as they're on their way back, say, to the scorer's table, and you're going to go back into the game. That's a very easy one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, absolutely, I would sub just going immediately after the player. Or sit, right? Sit. Sit I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to do it. I learned. I did it one time, and I'm going to tell you my experience uh, after this. I start with let the guy cool down a little bit. Okay. And then my, my technique is if the guy is too hot, I let him cool down a little bit. I go to where he is, and I just stay there without saying nothing for three, four seconds. So now I have his attention. So I don't speak right away when I get by his side. I wait a little bit, like, let's say, no more than, yeah, two, three, four seconds. So now the guy is absolutely focusing on me. Like, you know, just tell me whatever you want to tell me. (laughs) So once I have his attention, I try to be empathic. First, I try to think if this guy, obviously, if we sub him because he made something wrong or whatever, and he's mad at the coaching staff or the head coach or whatever, I need to think first. What happens? Like, if there is a particular play when this player messed up in a rotation, I have to think first why he did that. Because the players never make a mistake on purpose. Mm -hmm. Never. So I have to think, what took this guy to make this wrong decision? Whether Why is he taking cheap shots? Why is he not making the right reads? And if I have the answer, I start by this, telling him, well, man, that was a tough pass, or you took the shot, you make a bad decision because you missed those shots in this week in practice. I understand you, man, but you got to do this and this and this. So I think it's very important. First, get the attention of the player. If I have a very good relation with the player and I have a you know confidence, for example, if it's a guy that I work individual practice with him during the week, when I go to talk to him, I touch him. I establish physical contact with him. Like I put my hand on the shoulder mm-hmm. or in the leg or in the head or whatever. First, I got his attention. Second, I touch him. So I got him from a physical point of view, attentional, and also from a emotional point of view. And then I try to be empathic with him. And now I get the player ready for the corrections. So this is my point. I'm not going to talk with this player right after he's coming. I talk after. And then my second option is I have to make sure that the player is ready to go back to the court and play. So whenever he goes back to the court, I do exactly the same. I go where he is if I have a chance, because sometimes the sub is so quick that I don't have time. I go with him and I establish, you know, contact with him. I make sure that he is just paying attention to me and I remind one thing that I know that is going to make him feel good about going to the court. Yeah. I think that attention is, is a big thing and getting 
players ready from an emotional point of view is very important. For sure. And my experience about that, it was some years ago, we had a player, he had an injury and he went back to the team in one game. We were losing the game and we took this guy out of the court and I immediately went to talk to him because when he was sitting in the bench, he was cursing. Mm -hmm. So he was, you know, the whatever you coach, he took yeah. me out, blah, 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 blah. So I immediately went after him. And as soon as I get there, he just have a bad reaction to me verbally. And, you know, I knew in that moment that I was wrong because it's the same thing when a player is super high and super hot in the game and the referee calls a thing, the bad referees look at the player and try to challenge, you know, they challenge him. Mm -hmm. And this yeah. is the bad referees because, you know, you're going to get the response from the player. So bad coaching for me was going after the player because he was cursing. And I was, man, you're not right, blah, 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 blah. And he answered me back. I'm glad that the television cameras were not in this, <laughs> in this team because, yeah, because it would be ugly. Yeah. Because fans make a big deal about this, but it's not a big deal. And two minutes after that, I tell him, hey, the coach said you because the doctor told us that today you could not play more than four minutes in a row. And he said, man, really? Is that true? Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that was the reason. And immediately after the game, he came and he apologized. He said, man, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I didn't have this information. So there was no problem at all. I created a problem with my bad coaching. So I learned a lesson that day. <laughs> Coach, I mean, I know your relationship with the player is probably the most important, but how you choose to communicate or interact what role does if he's a bench player, if he's a, like a major minute guy, if he's a veteran or if he's a young guy play at all into any of these considerations when you're going to give critical feedback in a game? Well, I think that before you establish any type of communication with the players, you have to know a little bit the players. And I think that you have to talk to them with absolute respect, doesn't matter if he's a young guy or he's a veteran or whatever. I read a book many years ago from a coach. The name of the coach was Dan Peterson. He was an American coach that coached in Italy in the 80s. He coached at Milan. He was the coach of D'Antoni when he was okay. a point guard in Milan. I mean, he was Bob McAdoo was in that team. He was an excellent, excellent coach. And he had a book that was one of the first books I read when I started coaching. And he tells in that book that one time he was watching a, a youth team practice and the coach was talking to a player, a young player, let's say in a bad way, in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. And after the practice, Coach Peterson went to this guy and said, hey, I'm going to ask you a question. Will you talk the same way to one of the guys of the first team? Would you use the same tone with Mike D'Antoni? If you don't use the same tone, you are wrong. So you have to treat players the same as long as respect is concerned. So you have to respect every single player. You cannot have one type of talking with the guy who plays 30 minutes and differently than the guy who plays two minutes. That's wrong. I think respect is the base for everything. Mm -hmm. Respect. Second rule is that when you talk to a player, you get into his house. Mm -hmm. The coaches may say things that the players don't see. And the relation between coach and player is that you are going to demand some things from the player 
that sometimes are against their careers. They may think that playing time, injury risk, whatever. So you have to know the player and build a relation with the player before he lets you enter to his house. So when you want to establish a communication with the player, you cannot just kick the door and enter <laughs> to his house. I mean, he has to open the door for you and you build this relation. One way to build relation with the players is what I try to do is that my mood with the players, I try to be the same all the time. When the player plays well, when the player plays terrible, when the team wins, when the team loses, I'm available for the players every time. If a player wants to shoot a little bit after practice or in the free day or whatever, I have to be there. Building relation with them is a key to communicate, but you need to start from the respect. For sure. Yeah. Coach, so our last start subset has to do with work-life balance. And what is the most critical to achieving a good coach-life balance? Option one, is it time management? Option two, stress management? Or option three, relationship management? Well, bad relationship come to stress. Mm -hmm. And stress messed up everything. But I would say probably time management is good because to me, I feel stress when I have the feeling of I'm not getting things done. I don't have time to do this or this. This is very stressful for me. So time management to me is a key. I change the way that I work. I change through times. I adjust a little bit to my family life. And that was the best decision I ever made. So right now I found a balance. I use my time, I think, very wisely. And this absolutely takes the stress out because the stress that comes to time management, like the stress of not having the time, you know, to feel 100% prepared, this type of stress. So I would say time management is first. I start with that. And second, relationship, because I think that in the coaching staff, well, in my actual team, we've been 13, last 13 sessions uh, together with the head coach and the other assistant coach, me. Yeah. So relationships are absolutely key. Not only personal relationships, but know how the other guy works better. And I think my head coach is good doing this. He let us a lot of freedom for us to do the things our way a little bit. And sometimes we solve problems because the engine, you know, it works really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that relationship at work are also a very important thing to take stress out. And the third thing, it would be stress, but uh, once again, stress related to doing the things, not stress related to other things. For example, in my case, the best thing that happened in my life was just meet my wife and have my two daughters. Absolutely. And I always said that my two daughters are the two coaches that I learn most about basketball because I learn most things about life. And I think that since I became a father, I'm way better coach than before that. Why? Because when you find in your life a balance that makes you understand what's really important, you are better focusing on important things. And this applies also to basketball and to coaching. There are things that appear to be important, but they're not. 
I mean, they're less important than you thought at the beginning. So to me, the way to balance my coaching life and my family life helped me to be a better basketball coach. So I understand better things about life. And just a quick example. Before I became a father, I was terrible when my team lost the game. Terrible. I felt terrible. And what happened is that there came a point when I get home and my daughter wanted to play with me or talk with me or whatever. And I was not in the mood. And there was a point where I said, man, this is not fair. I mean, I'm going to lose the best thing that I have in my life because I'm not managing my career. And so I changed that. And I just applied some techniques, mental techniques. And I just came to a point. And right now I get out of the gym after a bad practice or after a bad game. And I feel terrible. But, you know, whenever I enter in my house, it's over until I go back to work. So now with the time and the practice, I learn to separate very well my coaching life and my family life. And it was an amazing change in my personal and in my coaching life. Coach, really well said on all that stuff. And as Pat and I were thinking about this question, we kind of knew all these things are somewhat interconnected, all these different options that we gave you. Um, And you speaking about your family and the time management and all that, um, you mentioned, you know, kind of a point where you figured out how to manage that time better. Uh, what was it? Was it just, you know, being more disciplined with turning off when you got home? Was it set hours of the day? I mean, what was it that I guess helped you kind of with that management part of it, your life? Yeah, well, what I did was in the pandemic here in Spain, we were around three months without being able to wait out of home. In that moment, the way that I work was terrible for me because I stayed up all night. And I mean, I did, I was not organizing very well. Uh-huh. So I decided to change it and I analyzed how I use my time, the 24 hours of a day. And I organized in a way that basically my life is basketball in two ways, because in one hand, there is my job, which is being assistant coach in Obradoiro. And on the other hand is my career, which is being basketball coach. So I need to complete my tasks with my team and being 100% able to help in my team. But also I have to use a certain amount of time every day in my development, my personal development as person, as, as a coach. And then family for me is very important. It's very important. So I decided to take away things that were a waste of time for me. So I go to bed earlier than I used to, and I get up very early. So I get up between 5 and 5.30 in the morning. In Spanish time, this very early. Right. <laughs> so I have those hours before they get up that I use for uh, reading, learning, studying the game. Also, I do some scouting. I do tasks of uh, my assistant coach job. Also, some some days I exercise, I go out running and whatever. So I save these hours of the day from, let's say, 5, 5.38, and I use them very, very, very well. Basically, I took away things that were a waste of time for me. I don't watch TV, really. My life is basketball and my family, and and that's it. I used to play electric guitar, but now I do it this season. This year, I'm not doing it a lot. 
<laughs> so then you know I had I had to take away something. Sure, sure. And it's not it's not good yeah. to play electric guitar at five o'clock in the morning. So That's right. It was, it was yeah. not a choice. Yeah. I don't play that well. Your music career has suffered. Yeah, my music career is yeah. standby. Let's see how it goes in coaching, yeah. and let's see maybe yeah. some years. Yeah. <laughs> Coach, you mentioned that you have some mental techniques that I think help you turn off before you get home. I mean, if you wouldn't mind or are willing, just kind of what mental techniques you use or what's helped you kind of turn off? Yeah, well, I want to make sure that I do it is every day. And especially when I have a bad day in personal issues or basketball issues or whatever, I think about how lucky I am. This is for me, it's a stress relief. Absolutely. So, you know, whenever I have a bad day, I go to my house and I'm thinking, I mean, everything is okay. I mean, me and my family are healthy. We have a roof over our heads. We have food on the table. So everything else is going to be, you know, secondary. It's easy to fix. So this thankful mentality, it helped me a lot, a lot. There is a podcast that I'm a big fan of your podcast. And I'm listening to another podcast, this uh, John Gordon podcast. Do you know him? Yeah. I like it very much. And I started listening to it back in the pandemic and I learned a lot. And some things that this guy, actually, he has some extremely useful books. I have all his books. I love them. And it talks about this type of techniques. And one of the best that I use is, you know, being thankful. Think about what I mentioned before, the important things. So are the important things okay? If they are okay, everything else is easy to fix. So what's the problem? That a guy is forgetting to move in one play? Okay, we go back tomorrow and we review it. What's the problem? That our big men don't get rebounds? Okay, we're going to just go through film and we're going to practice more or whatever. And I think that it helps to simplify the things. And also... One thing that I try to do, one of these techniques that I try to do is when I face a problem, I try to split it in parts. So a problem it always has many parts. And then I think with this problem, what can I do? What's in my hand to solve this problem? Mm -hmm. Is this part on my hand? And it's not. And I try not to worry too much in the things that are not in my hand. You know, it's the same technique that I use with players. I always tell them, you just do your best in the things that are in your hand. So referees is not something that you can control. If you're shooting and the ball doesn't go in, you make sure that you take a good breathing. You make a good decision whether you shoot the ball or not. Then once you release the ball, it's not in your hand anymore. So I always stress this to the players because I think that it builds confidence in the players and it builds confidence also, when I apply it to myself, like you need to find the feeling of I'm under control of this. You know, I can control this. I'm going to focus on this. I cannot control this. You know, I just let it go. Yeah. So I would say having a thankful mind and being able to split the problems in different parts and then decide what you can do and what you cannot do, I think is very important. And it's to me, the effects of this is just the stress goes down and down and down. Really well said on all those things that you're off the start, sub, or sit hot yeah. seat. So thanks for playing that game. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, okay, thank you. 
Hey, we've got one last question for you before we close. And before we do, we really thank you for your time and your thoughts today. This was awesome and so much good stuff here. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you guys for inviting me. It's an honor. Coach, our last question that we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Well, I don't know if it's the best or not, but everything related to networking, like getting to know other coaches, talk to other coaches. Before I was a professional coach, like, you know, working in basketball 24 hours a day, I went to see other coaches' practices all the time. I think that getting to know other people is the best thing. And all the networking part, you know, getting to know other coaches, spending time getting to know the players, I think is key. I would tell you that every clinic I went or every practice to other coaches that I attend, I spoke to the coach after that. It was such a great thing to me. And I think that this is probably the best investment that I, I had as a coach is learning from others and establishing relationship with other guys. To me, is the best part probably of our jobs. Boy, that was really a great conversation. Loved all the thoughts that we're going to get into here from Coach Rodriguez. We've gotten a chance to get to know Coach off air. Um, really well over the course of the last, you know, for sure year, a little bit beyond that. And I'm doing some work with him with Slapping Glass. He's going to do this mentorship group with us, which is really going to be awesome. And just such a generous coach, obviously super knowledgeable, a great coach on the court. But I think as we just kind of dive right in here, I think what just shown through is how he is off the court and the type of person he is outside of coaching as well. Absolutely. I mean, I know we'll, we'll get into it, but yeah, specifically when we got into start, sub, sit and discuss yep. yeah, off the court, I, I thought that was a really thoughtful and, and good conversation and, yeah, you know, appreciate him sharing. But I agree. I mean, I was looking forward to this one. Like you said, just been fortunate enough to build a relationship with him, you know, prior to this. So I knew the conversation was going to be good. We've had so many off air with him. So uh, it was really fun to finally yep. get him on and have him share. For sure. Getting right into this, this will be hard to be quick. We'll, we'll keep yeah. this quick on the wrap up <laughs> yeah. because there's, I mean, I've, I've got so much here, but let's just dive in. I loved his thoughts on anticipating problems yeah. and like how they break down, first of all, how to anticipate and then what to focus on. And I think he gave like a really good story and some good context about, you know, if you look on whatever your analytics site or what, you know, your film that you look at and you say, oh man, they're like he mentioned, they're great post-up team, or this guy's a great post-up player. Like just how to say, well, okay, but they, they do it five times. Like that's not a problem we need to overly work on. And then the further point that he made that I loved was just some of these things. And most of these things are figured out with the basics and going back to stuff. That's just our building blocks all year should solve the questions for something that's going to come up in a game that we, you know, you can't cover everything. And so I just think like anticipating the problems, finding what to focus on, and then being able to say and build a system around, well, whatever happens, maybe outside of these things, we should still be able to handle because we've built up the fundamentals of it. And I like the point too, he also brought up about looking at what coverage as well. Yeah. That if again, in the prism of a player, like 
yeah, he's a really good shooter, but is he getting chased or like post player, you know, where is it at or what is he facing doubles? And of course, pick and rolls, you know, this guy going to pick and roll, but what's the defense? Is he mainly attacking drops and, you know, assessing again, anticipating problems like, okay, well, yeah, we drop, so we got to find solutions or it's like, well, we're a hedging team. So how much can we rely or not rely on these numbers now? If the majority of, you know, his stats are against this type of coverage, I think it was also a good tidbit that you have to consider when just looking at these raw numbers and how to interpret them. I think it's really like this whole conversation. I know, well, we thought it was interesting and it's yeah. what he does. Gazelle does so well is just, you have the player side of scouting, you have the schematic side of s- scouting. And then you have like, I think you asked a question about like, you know, what if it's something that's outside of what your team does, but it's a strength of theirs, mm-hmm. you know, how do you fix that? And then ultimately we float into like, what do you then give to the players on the court and how do you start to work on that? And then before we just move to start subset, he just threw like one really great little tidbit in that he threw out the Joker plays. That, yeah, I'm glad he brought that up. Yeah, <laughs> that you can run against anything, zone, man, whatever coverage that they just there's stuff that will work. That was a little thread I would have pulled on. Yeah, more, <laughs> but but I thought here. maybe that's something we can do film wise with him because I I'd love to just take one or two of those Joker plays. So I'd like to pick his brain more on that. No, I agree. Yeah. Let's flip the start sub sit real fast. There was a ton in there too, so we'll keep this short, but I'll throw it to you on your takeaway. I'll just give you three big bullet points that came out and we can, I mean, compare where you were at, yep. but with the communication with players that are emotionally charged coming to the bench, I really, I like, he himself has to think about that player's why when he approaches him, establishing physical contact. And then I just like the metaphor, you're entering his house. You know, and to be yes. mindful of when you're entering his house. Yeah, and the entering the player's house was good. I mean, talked about you can't kick the door down. Yeah, um, yeah, which, yeah. They gotta let you in. Default at times. <laughs> yeah, right. I love that because I know he was obviously speaking too about like the relationship you build before you try to enter, a, you know, a player's yeah. house during those critical moments. Like they've got to let you in. I mean, you can kick the door down, but it's not going to be probably. <laughs> great situation all the time but i really like that too you and i talked about this question beforehand because obviously you know as coaches and as players i think that's been a learning for me like he talked about i've had some experiences as a coach where i've tried to coach someone not even in like in a overly emotional or like trying to go at a guy kind of a way but just when they're coming off the floor and you're trying to give them feedback i've definitely made the mistake of trying to give feedback and you get you get a response back that then pisses you off. Yeah. And then now you're now it takes you out of getting back to coaching the whole team because you're upset that you just had an interaction with the player that you need to put back in the game. And then it kind of snowballs. And I think to his point, I've tried to do better at like having them come off. If it's an emotional situation, tell them, Hey, go sit down, grab some water, come back in a minute. Let's talk. And that even that water, that minute break allows both of us time to, collect thoughts and usually it's less charge and i think that's kind of what he mentioned too and so you and i talked about this a lot because like i said we've been on multiple sides of it and always interesting to hear how others do it yeah i completely agree with you and you know just to follow up on your point i thought his example was great when it was him and a player had an emotionally charged conversation and it was all just to tell him like it's doctor's orders that you can't right, play right but you're right everything yeah. gets lost in translation when it's just it's so abrasive, abrupt, and it's just emotion-based. 
And it's yep. a challenge, obviously, during the game because everyone who's in in the game is a competitor. So you know, it's you can't just we're not robots. It's it is hard to remove the emotions. But yep. I think he's really been mindful about since that interaction. Sounds like establishing a process and like you said when he just goes and sits by the guy and doesn't say anything just establish like his focus or that i'm here and then like we can now have the conversation again i i mean we were fortunate enough to have prior relations so i know he's really good with communication so yeah it was fun just get in his head and how he thinks about it for sure and then i think just we'll just turn to the second one which there was just a ton in there yeah. i think maybe you and i can't do justice to what he said like it's just better for people to listen back <laughs> if you're at this point you've listened to it i mean i just think we'll double down on the fact that him talking about his family was super powerful i thought and him talking about how that's helped his time management which then helps with the stress management and it sort of just focuses back on how hard of a job this is and i think that as you and i have gotten the chance to do this slapping glass thing for longer and longer. We've gotten a chance to meet more and more coaches from all levels. We all deal with the same problems. And yeah. so these are really translatable conversations, you know, whether you hedge or double pick and roll, or, but these things are really ring true. And I just thought he was really well-spoken on it and a kudos to him. And we, you know, thank him as well for going there. Sometimes these are not the most, I guess, easy conversations to have uh, on a podcast too. Definitely. And I mean, I agree. I won't, I think he said it really well, so I don't want to step on any of his words, but it is basketball for, it, it can become all encompassing and it is really hard to turn it off. And so anytime you, we can have that conversation and hear from a coach, what they've done, what was their big turning point or how they try to manage time, I think is just super beneficial for us, <laughs> for sure, for us, uh, for, <laughs> for, sure. for anyone else, hopefully out there listening who's involved and it's hard to, yeah, just go home and just forget about the loss. But also how do you find the perspective that it is just a game you lost and nothing serious? Right. You spoke really well on that about splitting up problems and things to yeah. worry about versus not worry about. And I guess we'll leave it there. He gave me an idea though, for maybe another podcast or another start subsid or something with just shooters guarding shooters looking at their ppp rather than their shooting percentage yeah. looking at where their shots are coming from i mean i do think like in a quick scout situation you're looking at oh he's a 42 percent three-point shooter or he's or she's a 34 35 and it's just a real blanket look at a yeah. shooter and i liked how you know granular of details they get into on how that shooter gets their shots where they're coming from and then i think how that relates then to how you play them so I think overall, I just think it gave me an idea for maybe like a conversation about guarding shooters and things like that, maybe for something down the road. Yeah. And I mean, remembering back in that conversation, I just quickly liked to when it was his own player, but they looked at his percentage and he was just taking a lot of late clock shots, which affected percentage. But if you look at the stats now and you're scouting and you just go raw numbers and it's like, you know, whatever, he's 34%. But then you just give him a steady diet of open shots that aren't aren't late possession. It could really, really backfire on you. It's again exactly looking at the context of those numbers and how is he being defended? How are those shots coming? And if they're all tough bailout shots, no one's going to shoot a high percentage for sure. So maybe we'll circle back on that yeah. at some point. So as always, really fun. I learned a ton. Same. Enjoyed having him on. Thanks everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>